The epistle reading today is from Hebrews 4:14 4, to chapter 5 verse 10. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the, with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, We are going to, uh, we'll do the creed after the sermon. I um, realize that was put in before the sermon, but uh, we're going to do that after the sermon as it applies to our text today. Um, Before we get started, I also want to just remind everybody, it's not too late to invite someone to tonight's event. Uh, We're having Joshua Swamidas. Dr. Joshua Swamidas will be here to talk about the genealogical Adam and Eve. Uh, I've talked quite a bit about this, so I won't say any more. There are flyers out front, and uh, please pick one up. Please invite Friends, invite especially those you feel would benefit from a conversation like this, especially those who struggle with uh, with their Christian faith due to uh, evidence from science. So, okay, amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word today. Thank you for Jesus, that you are our great high priest. Thank you for how this worship service has just repeated that to us and reminded us. I pray that you're your word would, would come through me today and that your word would be piercing our hearts and laying us open before you, Lord, that we may boldly come before your throne of grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, last week, we were not here. We were in Texas last week, and Chris uh, preached from Hebrews 4. And uh, by the way, Chris, great job. I didn't get a chance to even tell you, but uh, it was a great sermon, really. And uh, um, he preached through uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And 
at the end of that chapter, we see, we want to just kind of build a bridge here from uh, the, the sermon yesterday or last week to the sermon today, because we're going into the next passage from chapter 4. And uh, just a, a quick read of that is, verse 11 is, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is a warning that he's giving. And as, as Chris pointed out last week, this is about faith. They didn't enter because of disobedience, but they didn't enter because, he went on to say, because of disbelief, because they were not believing. And so he, he closes that passage with this warning to the Hebrew church and to us. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And then he says, for what, a verse we know very well, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This word is piercing into our hearts and opening us up before our judge, before the one to whom we and they, all of us, all of those, all the creatures, must give an account to the judge, our creator. That warning reminds us that even in our current condition, it's reminding the Hebrews, even in your current condition, where you are right now, you're fearful. You see persecutions on the horizon. And even in this current condition... You're still guilty, and you still need salvation. And you're still laid open, naked and exposed before your creator. We cannot escape the judgment of God. That warning is reminding them you cannot escape the judgment of God. Suffering does not remove our accountability. Now, that's the bad news. And as Luther says... When he's, when he's talking about that passage and coming into today's passage, 14 through 16 and on, Luther says this, After God terrifies us, in verse 11 through 13, he then comforts us. After pouring wine on our wounds, that wine that burns but cleanses and afflicts our wounds, he now, in today's passage, he's pouring oil, oil of comfort on those wounds. This is their turning point. This whole book is written to a people who are at a turning point. They're on the verge of giving up their faith. They're on the verge of of going after something that is more attractive like Judaism, something that's more comfortable for them perhaps. They're on the verge of maybe giving up their faith completely. They're fearful. And the author is writing to them to this book to remind them to say nothing, as, as one commentator says, nothing could be more senseless than to abandon our confession because of some other attractive teaching or because of the pain of the contest we currently find ourselves. Nothing could be more senseless when we look at the gospel. It is what we need. And they were fearful. And we understand that, don't we? We understand the relationship, this relationship between fear and our faith. We understand that when we're fearful... We tend to question our faith. We tend to want to abandon our faith. Fear brings those kind of things. We saw that in the, in the, in the wilderness generation. They were fearful. They thought God had abandoned them. They thought they were going to die. 
And what did they do? They turned. They turned on Moses. They turned against God and said, take us back to Egypt. We just want to go back where it's comfortable. But an ideal response we could see in Psalm 56 where David says this. He says, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Yes, may that be our heart as we go into fearful days, as we go into days that are uncertain. But we know the fear has a way of steering our hearts into a smoother roads whenever we can find them. Fear can lead us to question our faith and even turn from it. And what the author is saying in the midst of their turning point, he starts to say here in verse 14. He says, after this warning, he goes on to say, But since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Brothers and sisters, let us hold fast to that confession. Let us hold fast to that gospel that has been proclaimed. Hold on to the truths of God's word. These are God's promises. Remember, he's going to say this again in, verse, in chapter 10. He's going to remind them, For you had compassion on the prison and you joy on the prison on the prisoners, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew yourselves that you had a better position. You knew this. You, you, would, you lived this gospel. And even in the midst of your trials in the past, you lived the gospel and you had the gospel as your source of life, your source of comfort, and your source of rest to where you would accept the plundering of your property. In chapter 10, he's going to say it again. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You need endurance. Why should we not hold our, why should we hold fast our confidence? Why should we hold fast our confession of faith, the gospel? Because this is what he's going to say in this passage. Because our great high priest is the son of God. But he's not only the son of God, he's the son of man. He's the son of humanity. And not only that, he's the source of that salvation that we need so desperately. The son of God, son of man, and the source of our salvation is who he is calling us to not let go. To not let go of, excuse me. So he starts out by saying he's the son of God. And we see this in chapter 4, in verse 14. He says, he passed through the heavens. Not any high priest ever pass through the heavens because these high priests were human, just like you and me. But our great high priest, and by the way, there were high priests, the writer turns or starts off by saying, since we have such a great high priest, the Greek of that is mega, this mega high priest. That's a Greek word we understand. This great high priest, since we have him, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus, our great high priest, transcends into the presence of God. When he was, when he made his offering, he went into the heavens, into the presence of God, where he is seated, as Ephesians says, as Paul says in Ephesians, he's seated with him now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Matthew gives us a picture of that also. After the crucifixion, the veil was torn in two 
Or as the King James say, the, the curtain was, was rent in twain or something like that. It was torn in two. It was torn in two to open up that holy of holy places in the temple, which was just, uh, just a building. But it was the presence of God, and it was the place where only the priest, the high priest, could go on one time a year during the Day of Atonement, when he would make sacrifice and make atonement for the people of Israel. But Jesus went into the very presence of God because he is one with the Father, because he is God. William Lane says, God's people, because of Jesus' high priestly ministry as the Son of God, God's people will one day celebrate the Sabbath rest in that very presence of God. We will be in that presence of God if we hold on, if we hold fast our confession of faith and our confidence in him. This was important to know. It's important to know because there, there were, for, for many years, there were these different ideas of, of, of Christ's person, of who Christ was. Was Christ God? Was he human? What was he exactly? And there are these what are called Christological heresies. And one of them that, that is probably the more common one is Arianism. And Arianism taught that, that he was a, a guy named Arius, and he taught that Jesus was another God, or he was not one with God. He was created and therefore, he was different. He was not God. But at the same time, Scripture teaches otherwise. We see in the beginning of Hebrews, that's exactly what the writer is saying. He's saying, no, he is God. He's the radiance of his glory, and he's the exact imprint of his nature. He is God. The Apostle John said it in chapter 1. He says, the word was God, and the word became, I'm sorry, the word was with God, and the word was God. John makes it a point at the very introduction of his book to say, Jesus is God. He was with God and he is God. Paul says in Philippians 2, probably one of the most uh, vivid descriptions of Jesus or, or the most definitive when he says he didn't, equal, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to take advantage of. Just taking for granted that he knew that he was equal with God. It's very important that our great high priest is who he says he is. Because by being the great high priest who is one with the Father, he is welcome and he can go to the Father and be in the Father's presence and open up, tear that veil so that his people can now be in his presence with the Father. And for further comfort, he tells us not only is he the Son of God, not only is he God and transcendent above us, but he's also the Son of Man. The word became flesh, John says. The word that is God also put on flesh. He became one of us. This is, this is mind-blowing when you think about the creator of the universe becoming one of us. Becoming a human. And, and he says in, in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every way, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, I think, was Jesus tempted? And this word is probably best translated as tested, but I think tempted works as well. You can be tempted and not give in to that temptation. 
If you're just messing around with a friend, you know, who is trying, let's, let's say during Lent they're trying to give, give up something and you can kind of, you know, you shouldn't do this. But, you know, if you're like holding something in front of them or eating something from that they're not supposed to, you know, you know, they, they don't have to succumb to that. They're not going to succumb to that usually. It's just, you know, but the thing is you can be tempted and not give into that. Being tempted is not sin in and of itself. But also it can be, it can be used as, te- as tested that Jesus withstood these tests of our humanity. Think about what he did. He feels and knows the power of these temptations and the power of these testings as well. Think about Jesus in the wilderness, being tested with hunger, being tested with, 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 with giving his power to, to bowing down, to worshiping Satan, to, to, to have the kingdoms of the world given to him. Think about the testing that Jesus went through going to the cross. These are the things that are mostly laid out here that the author is thinking of here is his testing in going to the cross, his testing in Gethsemane, dealing with the knowledge of his imminent death, knowing that and knowing the power that has over the human body and how devastating it is, how devastating hunger is, how devastating sickness is. Jesus knew those things. He knows what we're going through because he experienced it. He experienced the pains and the sufferings of human life. The only thing he cannot relate to with us is succumbing to those temptations. He can't succumb to the testings. He he didn't succumb to the fears, to the point of sin. But as one who is fully human, he can relate to it all. And so we have a a great high priest who knows the pain that you and I are going through today. We have a great high priest who knew very well the pain that the Hebrew church was going through at the time, feeling the incoming persecution, feeling that they were going to go through this plundering of their property again, the, the, the physical pain that they were going to go through. And yet he was one who knows it. He went through it. You know, when we become Christians, we, we certainly don't stop sinning. And we shouldn't act like we do. We shouldn't act like we stop sinning. But sometimes I think Christians are, are, are tempted to, to put on a, a more righteous face than they really need to. But the thing is, we want somebody we can relate to. We are drawn to people who can relate with our weakness. Do you know the very first time we came to this church, well, not the very first time, but when we started attending Grace and Peace back in 2013, we were kind of broken ourselves, and we were hurting. And one of the things that kept us here, beyond knowing some people here, that was one thing, but what kept us here was what my wife called the unapologetically brokenness of this church. Can I say that? Okay, forgot to ask you. But I've used that a lot with other people because it just is so correct. That's how we experienced grace and peace. And that was so beautiful for us. Do you know how wonderful it was to have somebody, uh, have one of the pastors or a worship leader talk about their struggles? To have somebody come up and give a testimony of how they struggled with sin this past week. And to have a congregation who loved them anyway. 
and accepted that. In a place where we were, to have a pastor reach out to us and just let us be broken with him and not try to change us. We needed that. And it drew us closer to Christ because it was somebody who loved us. Someone who said, I know what you've been through. I feel the pain that you feel. Maybe not in the same way, but I'm feeling it because I'm human. Because I'm also broken. Because I'm also a sinner. But let me take you to the high priest. Let me be a priest for the great high priest. The one who knows no sin, but knows your pain. And can usher you into the presence of the living God just as he has me. That was beautiful for us. And it continues to be beautiful about this church. It's one thing I still love about this church. So thank you. So as the son of God and the son of man, he was able as the great high priest to satisfy the needs of our salvation. Like none other. You see, human priests would offer the blood of bulls and goats. They would offer the blood of animals, but that was no good. That, that really, that was just a payment in advance. That was like a promissory note. That was a shadow of the things to come that the priests would do in the, in the, in the temple when they were making atonement for the people of Israel. God took that into account, but it was not the payment. The human priests were only a shadow of the great high priest who was to come. Because as Hebrews will say later, as the writer will say, the blood of bulls and goats doesn't do anything for our sins. But only the sins, but only the blood of the righteous and faithful great high priest is able to satisfy because he does it with those his own blood because his own blood is sinless. And that high priest was able to take us and give us his righteousness as he took our sins upon himself. He turned the throne of judgment. Think about this. The throne of judgment, the throne of the, the, the presence of God in, 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 in which we couldn't stand because we would die. What do he do to this? What does he say? Let us then, verse 16, draw near to the throne, what? Of grace. Now it's the throne of grace. The throne of grace. Why should we draw near that? So that we could receive mercy and find help in our time of need. Hebrews, he's saying, this is your time of need. Don't run away from the Lord now. Don't run away from the gospel now. This is when you need the gospel. This is when you need that great high priest. Don't abandon him now. And he's saying that to us. The fears can take us away from fellowship with one another. The fears and, and, and the frustrations can take us away from our great high priest and the rest that he offers, the righteousness that he offers. All of those fears can take us away. And the writer is saying to us today, the gospel is saying, don't let that happen. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy in our time of need. In verse 5, he goes on to, to talk about the priesthood. And he says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Verse 2, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. 
Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. It's important to note that there were also heresies, Christological heresies about Jesus' humanity. One that, that, that stands out is, is docetism, which, which believed that Jesus was not a real, his body was not a real physical body. It was kind of like a phantasm or some kind of a, of a spirit body, but it wasn't real. And that came from a, from a belief that any physical matter was evil. So there are people that just could not accept that Jesus was fully God and fully human. And that's why it's important in our confessions. I have the Apostles' Creed today, but uh, I probably should have put the Nicene Creed in there because it talks about him being one with the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, and he brings back Psalm 2 here. He says, remember, he brought that in earlier in, in, the, in the book, when he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus was not created, he was begotten. And the Father appointed him as a priest. And he says, where he, where he quotes Psalm 110 here, you are a priest forever. You're an eternal priest and he says it's according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, we're going to learn more about him, I think, in chapter 7, and Dave Peter is going to be preaching on that. Um, but the point of this is really when he talks about the order of Melchizedek is to say that he is not out of the line of Levi. He is not a Levitical priest. He's not out of the human line of the priests or a descendant of Aaron. He is a descendant in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is in Genesis 14, if you want to read ahead, uh, look a little bit about him. But he appeared to Abraham, and it says he had no descendants, and he was this, this, this Christ-like figure in the book of Genesis here. So he comes from the order of Melchizedek. And verse 7 talks about Jesus' humanity. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Some say he was heard because of his fear, because of his godly fear. He points out that Jesus was raising his tears to the Father in the garden when he was about to be put to death. But what did he say? He said, nevertheless, not, take this cup from me, Father, but not my will, but yours. Let your will be done. He was heard, this fear, this trust is really about his, his, his trust of God that he could entrust himself completely to the Father. That's what's talking about when it says he was heard because of his reverence. He could entrust himself completely to the Father. And although he was a son, verse 8 says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Did he learn obedience? This is not the sense of learning obedience through correction. Jesus never had to be corrected. 
But this is learning obedience. He learned the pain and the difficulty of obedience. Remember, there was a progression to Jesus' life. Luke himself says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. There was a progression. He was fully human. He went through some of this progress of growth. And he was always obedient. Always obedient to the mission to which God had called him. To which he knew he came, for which he came. But he learned throughout the process of the pain and the suffering that was involved in the obedience that he had, that he was committed to giving to the Father. No spirit figure is going to feel that pain. This was somebody who was really, truly human and really, truly with the same amount of nerves as we have to feel that pain. Verse 9, and being made, not only was he the, the, the son of God and the son of man, but he became through that the source of our salvation. Being made perfect, completed his work. Not being made perfect in the sense of being made better than he was. He was always perfect. But being made perfect is referring to his mission, completing the work to which he was brought to earth for, to, to which he came to earth for. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. To whom? To all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest, again, after the order of Melchizedek. He's the source of our salvation. And the writer is saying he's the only source of our our salvation. Brothers and sisters, he is the only source of of our salvation. There is no other path but Jesus, our great high priest. We are in our time of need. Without Jesus, our great high priest, the word of God cuts us to the quick and lays us open naked and exposed before the one to whom we must give an account. Lays us out guilty before him. We have nothing to help us except our great high priest who has come, torn the, 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 the veil in two, and ushered us into the glory of God, into his presence. What must we be, do to be saved in the midst of our suffering or in the midst of on, oncoming persecution, in the midst of, of whatever is coming? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the great high priest and what he came to do. Believe on the payment that he made for your sins and for my sins. Believe on the ongoing work he does, interceding for us constantly, daily, continually, making intercession for us, as Paul tells the Romans. He does that because we need it. We need a high priest who... who gives us what we need and ushers us into the throne of grace. When all the hosts of death and powers of hell unknown put their most dreadful forms of rage and mischief on, I shall be safe, for Christ displays his conquering power in guardian grace. His conquering power in guardian grace. Brothers and sisters, let's hold fast to our confession 
Let's hold fast to this gospel. Let's hold fast to our great high priest. Amen. Would you stand with me and let us proclaim...